0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Francis Sachs, and I'm a host on the New Books Network. Today I'm joined by biologist, filmmaker, and author Tom Mustell about his new book, How to Speak Whale. Tom, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much.
0: You had a pretty interesting encounter that started off this whole journey. Can you tell us a bit about what happened?
1: Yes, I was um, I was kayaking with a friend in Monterey Bay in California. Um, and we were whale watching, we were a tour, um, and, uh, there are a lot of humpback whales, which are one of the bigger ones. Um, and we managed to sort of carefully keep our distance and potter around and have a really beautiful morning. And then we were heading back to shore, uh, when out of nowhere, uh, one of the whales breached onto us, which is when it, it throws its body out of the sea. Um, and, um, it, yeah, it, it shot out of the water and landed right on top of us
0: wow and we don't really know why whales breach at all correct
1: yeah that's correct and it's i find that really i mean astonishing because if you think like these are the biggest animals and this is one of the coolest things like uh, i spoke to a scientist who estimated that they release something like 30 hand grenades worth of energy when they do it. You know, imagine if like a lion or an elephant did this some enormous, spectacular uh, explosive somersault and we just couldn't explain it. Um, but yeah, I think that it, I mean, it really represents whales quite accurately in that the most dramatic things that we know they do. We're quite unclear about why they do them. I mean, there's a few theories, actually, like so like, you know, some people think maybe they, it's like communication, like the smacking sounds travels through the sea and um, that uh, can indicate their size or that there's something worth paying attention, attention to. Um, other people think maybe that it's a way of dislodging parasites from their skin because they've got lots of barnacles and lice and things like that. Um, um, and maybe it's just a combination of lots of different things
0: we also really don't know for sure yet and this is maybe the the crux of the book which is why they sing and what they sing can you give us a little bit of background about whale songs why do we call them songs
1: Uh, great question um so uh it's only really in the last hundred years that we thought the whales made noises at all. Some whalers suspected they did and thought they did. Uh, but in general, in, in you know industrialized human society, whales were considered sort of stupid big fish that didn't make any sounds. Um, and then when we invented hydrophones, underwater microphones, we could uh, listen to uh, underwater sounds. And we discovered that all uh, as far as we know, species of cetaceans, whales, well dolphins, and porpoises, there's about 90 of them, uh, make lots of sounds. And those sounds are actually enormously varied and uh, they have sort of virtuoso voices. They could make them in ranges like below and above our own sounds. And some of them even can make two sounds at the same time, like doing duets with their own voices. Um, and uh, most of these were thought to be sort of communication, um, which makes sense uh, because as well as using sounds to navigate, they they need to coordinate their social lives. Um, But in the 1950s and 60s, a man uh, was working for the US Navy in Bermuda um, called Frank Watlington and and he had to listen for Soviet submarines uh, with these listening devices on the seafloor and for nuclear tests and things like that in the Cold War. Um, And he heard these beautiful long uh, sounds and he associated them with when whales were around. Um, And a young man called Roger Payne uh, uh, and his wife Katie came to visit him, a biologist who studied hearing and owls and bats, but had become obsessed with whales. Um, And he played the sounds to them. And he said, I think that the whales are making them. And Roger and Katie, uh, they burst into tears when they heard them and they thought they were beautiful. and this Navy engineer, he said he didn't want to give the sound recordings to the whalers in case whalers used them to find whales. Because at this point, we were industrially killing whales in the hundreds of thousands. Um, and they, many species looked doomed to extinction. Um, and Roger uh, took the recordings home and he analyzed them. And with a man called Scott McVeigh, they kind of printed off uh, the kind of graphs of the sounds called, called uh, spectrograms. And they, by looking at the patterns on those graphs, they discovered that they have the same or very similar patterns uh to human uh songs they have um they're made up of smaller re- units that are repeated in different um uh sort of systems and they uh use rhythm and rhyme uh they, they perform them in a performance where they will take a big breath and swim down and then they will sing a whole song for like 25 minutes or so and come up to the surface and then take another breath and repeat it and i've, I've seen I've witnessed this. I've swum in the water. I've felt the song through my body, uh, and you, and as well as being incredibly beautiful, you are really aware of the amount of care and attention the whales are putting into each one. So, really, I mean, Roger was a musician, and so was Katie, his wife, and they were just struck by the inherent musical nature of it, intuitively by how it made them feel and how beautiful it was, but also um, when you investigate it at a structural level. And so they. Um, published a paper, that was the front page of science um, uh, called, about, called Humpback Whale Song, and that really astonished uh, biologists and the wider community because until that point, it was really only thought that humans and birds sang, but here we had this giant animal in the sea that that sung too, uh, but quite why they sing, we still don't know, um, and uh, we have found it looks like maybe other whale species have some things like song as well. Um, um, but humpbacks are probably the most prolific singers, they sing in all the oceans of the world, um, and if, if you go around the world in many seas, if you stick your head underwater, uh, you're, you're, you're reasonably likely to hear humpback whale song.
0: When you say the, the songs have rhyme and repetition, what does that
1: mean? Um, uh, well, they have uh, rhymes and, and rhythm. I mean, they're, they're made up of lots of different elements that are repeated in different orders. Uh, rhyme would be that bit that sound like one part sound a bit like another part. So that is used in human epic poetry, for instance. Before we had written culture, uh, you know, the, before the Iliad and the Odyssey were written down, they were spoken, and these were huge long poems and uh, rhyme. And it's the same with nursery rhymes with children are very helpful for human brains and perhaps for other mammalian brains to be able to remember complicated long things um, and to pay attention when complicated long things are being uh, sort of displayed and and performed to you. Uh, And rhythm, I think uh, it's quite hard to to explain, but it's more about uh, the, uh, yeah, the sort of the beats and the pulses within the song. Uh, it, the best way to understand this would be to listen to some of it, and I think that you can kind of intuitively see it. But you can also look at these spectrographic breakdowns um, that show it, and you can listen if you're if you're interested. I, like I can send you some if you want to play in this for people to listen, or if you just Google humpback whale songs, you'll come across loads.
0: I would love that. If you have some ones that you recommend, I can put them on the on the blog post. Yeah, great. I thought it was really interesting that, and I didn't know this. I was actually shocked by this, and. This weekend was 4th of July weekend. I used this as a great dinner party story. Everybody was very impressed with me. Well, impressed with you. (laughs) But that the songs of a population will coalesce into a single song during breeding season and then change throughout the year as the whales travel thousands of miles. And then they join back up for the next breeding season. And it coalesces again, but into a
1: slightly different song. Yes, I mean I can't take any credit for this. I'm just relaying what the scientists have discovered. But um, so, uh, I, so having discovered that, that that it was humpbacks making these sounds, and then discovering that this, these sounds have structures like songs, uh, Roger and the other scientists and Katie uh, were were astonished to see that when they listened the next year and the year afterwards, the songs changed, and. Um, it might only be subtle from one year to the next, but over, say, five years, if you listen to the song Five Years Apart, they would sound almost totally different. In fact, like, the human scientists, um, they have, like, preferred years. They're like, oh, yeah, the late 50s, they were really, not the late 50s, the late 60s, they were great for humpback whale songs. We haven't really had any good ones like that for ages. Um, And so uh, to think of this dynamic, um, it's helpful to remember, uh, to know that um, humpback whales they, they tend to feed in the cold waters where there's loads more food, and breed in the warmer waters where there's less food. Um, but they travel to to shed their skin parasites and to mate and to sing more, um, and to give birth to their young, which then build up a, a blubbery layer before migrating to the colder waters to feed. So when they all come together in these breeding waters and they sing a lot there, though we're now discovering that they sing kind of everywhere they go. Um, that's where at the beginning of the breeding season, you'll notice that, and it's the males we think do the majority of this, or all of the singing. Um, they will all be singing slightly different songs, but then it appears that they're paying attention to each other so that by the end of that time, you'll, they will almost be identical, the songs. But then how do the songs change? Well, well at, in their migrations, whales from one subpopulation will go into waters where other whales live. And it appears that they listen, whales in some populations, to whales from others. So there's like hit factories that the whales from Australia seem to be really good at making kind of viral whale songs. And when they migrate, other whales in other oceans nearby pick up on these and then incorporate elements and themes from their songs into their own. So... It's not that the whole, well, all the humpback whales in all the in the in all the oceans are singing the same song at once. It's more that all of these songs are constantly changing and 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 sort of coalescing and reforming and reacting to one another. Um, and 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 you know, another thing to sort of get some perspective on this is that they could have been singing these songs for a lot longer than uh, humans have been singing songs on land. Uh, you know, these animals have been in the sea for 55 million years, and they've been not in their present forms, but that's when their ancestors uh, moved back from the land to the sea. And they've been, you know, had these incredible vocal anatomies and listening anatomies and mastery of the ocean for millions and millions of years. So we could be listening to the sort of cultural endpoint of something that's been going for a lot longer than we have.
0: Like an oral tradition.
1: Exactly. And they're very I mean, oral traditions we know are very resilient. Like if you look at uh, indigenous Australian cultures where, uh, and also in the Basque country and some of the Atlantic coast of Europe, there were studies they did where they asked people um, uh, who uh, who had songs and stories about where the coast used to be um, in the histories, in the oral histories. and they asked the scientists asked them to just sort of describe where local where landmarks were and where the coasts were, and they they tarried these oral tradition descriptions with um, their uh, computer models of the last ice age, and they found that they were extremely accurate. So because the sea levels changed ten thousand years ago as we came out of an ice age, it appears that the humans who lived in those places remembered that and were able to accurately pass those down. So we have no written uh, history that has been passed down for ten thousand years so actually our most resilient cultural things are oral and why should that not apply to other species
0: Mm.
1: we're just fixated with words because we've had them recently and we all use them all the time and it can actually kind of um, stop us from noticing that these these other ways of expressing and transmitting information may be much more resilient Uh, in the same way that you know we think that by putting everything in the cloud it's kind of safe forever but actually have you tried to connect an old hard drive from like 10 years ago to a computer often all the stuff on it's lost um so it's kind of i find this really fascinating that you can think that the most resilient thing way of recording yourself is actually maybe quite fragile
0: to go back to that idea of being wrapped up in words and well written words but also just words in general it seems like you were saying this in the book that we're so wrapped up with the idea of looking for communication specifically in syntax and thinking that the exchange of words is the only meaningful facet of exchange of of exchanging information. But in fact that human communication is actually so broad and it, it encompasses so much like facial expression, eye contact, the way we hold ourselves, tone and volume of voice, Um, there's a lot of different signaling going on, but it's still super limited. And you write that, quote unquote, quote, many human signals are unspectacular as are our senses. Although we are pretty sensitive to some parts of the light spectrum, that range isn't terribly impressive. We are blind to infrared and ultraviolet wavelengths. Our ears cannot hear the sonic rumbles of elephant voices, as they are below those of distant earthquakes, nor can we hear the calls of bats and moths swooping past our windows at night, which are above 20 kilohertz. So do you feel like this idea of being, um, of, of hierarchizing communication, the idea of putting words and sentences and language as stringing together words on a pedestal has affected our way of being able to understand or being able to look deeply and meaningfully at animal communication?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think our um, almost fetishization as uh, of what's called by linguists like natural language, which is sort of hu- human language that has uh, not been designed, but has that sort of come about through our societies um has our our battles over what that is uh, our conviction f- for a very long time that we're the only ones who have it have have made it very difficult to have conversations about what communication systems might exist in other animals uh, even the word language is so contested that it's really sort of quite exhausting to 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 engage with the arguments going on about what it is where it is i mean like for example only recently and it all makes sense when you look into why linguists get into tied into these knots but it for instance like human like american sign language was only recently given the status of a language like you could you could say that in sign language and people using sign language would probably have you mean quite put out to discover that linguists didn't consider themselves them to be using a language um and that and i think really just the the word language is, is is sort of unnecessarily divisive because i think for most human beings you know it, it, it's understandable to not want to anthropomorphize and to say that other species have capacities that they don't by using a human term like language but also it strips away opportunities of seeing when they are able to do things by denying them wor- like words that have connotations for us um so you know in the book i trace a bit of the history of this but like in the like the philosopher Rene descartes like he believed that what separated humans from other animals was language was our capacity it didn't matter that they could feel things it didn't matter that they thought things what mattered that was that they couldn't represent their thoughts in a logical coherent way using language. And so it was cool for us to be above them and superior to them and do horrible things to them. Um, And this, this tradition has been carried through into a lot of modern philosophy and a lot of modern linguistics. Like so many philosophers and linguists I came across in research in the book, use statements constantly like, humans are the only animals to have language. But I looked at those people's research uh, backgrounds, and none of them had spent any time watching animals in the wild and then when it moved, when we did start studying communication other species, we did so because it was pragmatic on like captive animals, chimpanzees in zoos or human houses or you know dolphins in aquaria and parrots in sort of you know in new York apartments and whenever those animals fell short, we blamed them we said, well, you know if they can't speak English. Uh, by themselves, surrounded by humans, then they don't have language capacities. There's never really been a huge systematic study of another animal in the wild to try and see how it communicates. Um, and that's because it's really hard in part, as well as because of we lack inclination. Um, so, I mean, really, nobody can have a strong view on whether other animals have language or not, in my view, because no one's really given it enough attention. And I'm very... Uh, wary of people who believe fundamentally that they must or believe fundamentally that they don't because i don't see how either of those views can be supported with any of the work that's been done but the indications from the last couple of decades of research into other species are finding loads of elements of what that we would call language in other species even ones that have been right in front of us the whole time not things like whales that are, you know in the sea and hard to access
0: mm. Yeah, it seems like that could be a reason why a lot of those early research experiments with apes, for example, in captivity trying to get them to to speak like humans or trying to get them to to be able to engage with us the way that the way that we try to engage with them fall to kind of dead ends. It's because we're looking at communication from such a narrow perspective.
1: Yeah, it's looking it's like trying to i I don't know if this analogy works i've just thought of it but it's kind of like trying to understand what an arm does if you cut it off a body and just sort of look at it in a box like languages evolve in societies of communicating cultured animals and in the same way that you probably wouldn't get a great idea of the language capacities of a human if you took a baby human and just surrounded them with wolves um you know and and tried to see like how quickly they could learn wolf um you, or if you just place them in an environment where they the language capacities they evolved weren't relevant, like trying to look at uh, you know a parrot in a cage or a whale in a dolphinarium, um, it's it, it's all about context and it, and and it's funny that it should seem I mean it makes sense because how, how it's so hard to just spend lots of time around wild animals and how do you listen to them the whole time and how do you you know we, we biology has been the study of comparing patterns in nature and the only patterns we've been able to harvest and compare for until very recently are, are those of dead bodies you know go to a natural history museum it's just full of skeletons you know it's just full of stuffed animals it's co- um go to the the field journals of most biologists and they were writing down what they encountered what species of it how many of there were they were only Since we made movie cameras and we could record sound, have we been able to capture behavior and compare it? Um, And only very recently have we been able to capture loads and loads of behavior to compare it and to use machines to also help us do those comparisons. Uh, We're limited in this. It's a bit like consciousness in that we're really limited in trying to investigate it because we're kind of caught up in it very hard to, uh, for us to step outside of our humanness. Our human brains are great at investigating human language. we've got no idea how good they are at investigating non-human languages if they exas- exist. Um, and our human lives are very short and other animals run away from us and you know we, we're just confounded at every turn uh, and that's that's what's exciting now because the machines that we've developed for finding patterns in human behaviors and human languages, kind of help us to uh, step outside of our humanness and find patterns that we'd miss ourselves.
0: It seems like there are two main areas of technological innovation happening right now that are, that are helpful with, with this kind of research. Those being surveillance technologies and also AI technologies, AI systems. Um, so let's start with surveillance, as I feel like it kind of comes first, because in order for the AI to work, you need the, the data to feed it. What are some of the tools that, that scientists and also importantly, just enthusiasts, enthusiasts are using to record animals nowadays?
1: Um, well, I could probably use like the reason I got interested in all of this was when that whale jumped onto us, um, you know, it, it, it dragged us underwater. We resurfaced. We were both alive and unhurt. And then I thought that was that. But somebody, a tourist on a boat with a cell phone, uh, recorded it and put it on YouTube. And it went viral. So suddenly a story that nobody would have believed was a data point that loads of people had witnessed. And that was GPS located. And then scientists used a, 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 a crowd... A sort of a citizen science uh, program called Happy Whale, um, which takes photographs taken by tourists of whales' tails as they go before they go underwater, and it uses them to uh, an AI process to ID them. That that's a surveillance system. It's that you know, in the hands of all of those tourists going whale watching, you have cell phones and cameras. Um, uh, by pooling all of those together, the scientists were able to figure out who the whale was that landed on me and then by comparing them to the databases where well, that where that well came from they could tell me where else it was seen so i now know you know that it's it was 7 years old it was uh, i've just uh, discovered today that it was a male because they got a GP, uh, they got a dna sample of it when they came across it recently um, i know who its mother is i've been following its its life ever since um, so that's one surveillance system and that you know it was it's just cell phones we, I don't know if you use the apps that help you identify birdsong by listening to them, like Merlin, or identify plants by taking photos of them. Like the, the biggest biological data sets on Earth are no longer made by biologists. They're made by members of the public recording the world around them. And I think soon you'll be able to go back through your holiday photos from years ago and use AI tools to go through your accidental surveillance and tell you, not only what species you were looking at, but which individual like animals were passing passing by your life. Uh, who, who else's conversations were in the backgrounds of yours? Um, so that's one example with me. And I, that, that's how I got into this. I was like, well, as a biologist and conservationist, I've spent loads of my life just trying to running around trying to find the same animal again. And suddenly, you know, we didn't even know like you know the how many humpback whales there were at all. Uh, uh, you know, to perhaps the order of magnitude. But Happy Whale, the citizen science tool, just published a paper this week, and they think they've identified almost every single living humpback well in the North Pacific using this tool. No biologist could have done that. I mean, and other tools, you know, um, drones, so you, uh, it's very, you put, if you fly above the sea, you can see through the water. You can watch the behavior of whales. Uh, I was just talking to David Gruber, who's running a project today. He's up on a boat today uh, in Dominica. They're flying drones that drop Tags, which are like little recording devices on the, uh, with suckers modeled on, you know, remoras, the sucker fish, like suckers like that. And they drop them from the drones onto the backs of the whales. They stick on and then they stay down for days now, recording audio and video and movement and temperature and heartbeat. I saw them deploy one to get take the heartbeat of a blue whale. Um, So suddenly, and that's because of the miniaturization miniaturization of devices in your cell phone. These are just the things in your cell phone made waterproof and put onto a sucker. Um, So suddenly you don't have to drive a boat or jump off a boat and look underwater. You can follow a whale without disturbing it too much from its own body. Um, Passive recording. I mean, there's microphones on the seabed all around the world listening 24 hours a day. Um, I went to Hawaii and I met a woman who developed a sea robot that uses solar and wave power to sail itself across entire seas. It went from Hawaii to um, Mexico. Another one went all the way up through the Hawaiian Islands. They could cross entire oceans under their own steam, navigating, avoiding vessels and recording sound and video the whole time. So that gives you an idea of the surveillance in in the ocean. You know, you have active stuff. Humans are driving around doing things. You have things on the bodies of the animals, and you've got passive recording platforms and uh, things on the seabed. Um, And these are giving us data sets that we just never had before. And what that's doing more generally is turning animal behavior, which was mainly an anecdotal science, into into a much more statistical science, something more where you could get many more repetitions, orders of magnitude, more data, uh, which is more like physics and chemistry. And that allows you to draw really different patterns out of what animals are doing. Um,
0: mm. And what are some of the technologies that, because that's just going to be such a large data, data set, more than any human could ever analyze in their lifetime or probably even in multiple lifetimes what are some of the technologies that are being deployed to find patterns in that data
1: well I went to like a, a bioacoustics conference in Sussex in England and it was really interesting you know I think probably about 20 years ago it would be quite rare for people to have had a few recordings but every single scientist you know from a sort of master's PhD student you know to like very learned people at the end of their careers, they'd get up and they'd play their recordings and they said, this is what I've recorded. And then, you know, they all had so, so many recordings they'd roll their eyes about how much of their time it was it was taking up, just trying to spool through it all. Um, and that's the downside of, you know, we all have this. We all, we've gone from like having a few photos. I mean, I don't know how, I'm 39. So like uh, all my photos from my childhood uh, fit in in like four albums. You know, but I have to pay for extra cloud storage increasing by the month for all of the photographs I'm generating today, so we've gone from this these you know these few and valued um, uh, recordings to just so many that we can't even keep track of them. so the tools we use that, that are used for finding patterns in animal data sets. Uh, are very similar to the ones that we developed on human animals, facial recognition on human faces works for identifying whales by their tails, manta rays by their dot patterns. Um, You can use things that track the gait and movement of humans to identify like movements and patterns in fruit flies and rodents. Um, Voice recognition works uh, for other animals and that you can can use it to um, separate out when there's lots of Uh, speakers speaking at the same time lots of bats or lots of dolphins all chirping or on top of each other if you want to try and understand who's saying what you first need to like separate them out the kind of cocktail party problem um if you have a zoom conversation it will separate you know like otter or one of those apps it will separate out who's speaking by speaker um you can so you can you can figure out who's speaking you can figure out when somebody is speaking you can figure out which species is speaking um And then you can clean up those recordings. um, And those are the sort of the the, the drudgery tools that take away the sort of things that would have taken humans a long time. But then there's a sort of another tier of AI tools that are getting getting people really excited, which are not just tools that remove, that do tasks that would have taken many human lifetimes to do, but just do tasks that no human brains can do. So uh, no doubt people have been, potentially your listeners will be aware of things like chat GPT and other large so-called large language models um, the uh, image recognition has been one of the areas where um, AI has got has leapt ahead and surprised everybody but the other places in the di- discovery of hidden patterns in languages and the abilities for uh, deep learning uh, uh, and other AI tools to find patterns in lar- when given large volumes of language um, that we don't see and a really good example of this is google translate google translate doesn't know um, that it's dealing with a language it's not given bilingual dictionaries but yet it can translate between urdu and spanish and english and the way it does this is it's given loads of examples of urdu and spanish and english it's spoken or written it works with both and um it uh there's lots of different processes going on, but to put it really simply, you can sort of make a what's called embedding, a giant kind of galaxy of all the words or other things in the language, um, uh, where you kind of plot in thousands of dimensions, or you ask the model to plot in thousands of dimensions, all the relations between all the words as they're used in all those billions of instances, uh, more than any human could notice. And the great discovery was that the shapes within the Urdu in English and Spanish match each other. So you can say... Where's the, the, you know, what corresponds to what? Um, and you can translate without a dictionary. And that is really, really exciting if you want to try and find out what patterns, what uh, words or word-like things might exist in non-human communication systems. Um, because you can feed all of those bioacoustic recordings from the seabed, from the bodies of whales uh, as they swim, uh, you, into these language models. And this holds the promise of uh, it doesn't we don't really know what we're going to find but it, it really it gives us a radically different uh, tool that we know is enormously powerful at finding patterns in human language that we can apply to other non-humans to see what patterns might exist in their communication systems and now the big challenge is in is really in getting a, a data set that's as big as the ones that would used to train chat GPT you know sort of billions of examples um, Because it's when you get data sets that big uh, that you start to be able to have these really powerful effects of finding patterns. Um, And that's what's going on right now in Dominica, for instance, with sperm whales.
0: I mean, that deep neural network for translation um, that Google Translate uses, reading about that was really exciting to me in your book because... It did always seem to me like traditional routes for trans- translation just wouldn't be possible because there is no like there's there's some common ground obviously in that we're alive and we eat food and we socialize, but the universes that we exist in are so different. Like we are small animals that are tethered to the ground by gravity, and have kind of. Um, quiet voices and just trying to, trying to translate anything to communicate with a species whose whose lived existence is just so alien to ours. Seems like it does need a conceptual leap in translation practices. Like the deep neural network seems like kind of a, not to like get ahead of myself because I did find it so exciting in the book. And obviously my impulse is to just be, um, so optimistic about it, but it does kind of seem like it could be a Rosetta Stone, if it worked.
1: Absolutely. I, I mean, I, am I, I'm, I'm probably not sounding as excited as I should be because I've got a three-week-old daughter. And I'm not getting much sleep. But I, this, I had no idea about any of this as, like, as a, as a biologist. I, it felt like the most exciting thing I'd ever come across to have it described by these scientists. I think it's very important um, to, to frame this that. The, we're not just going to—they're not, they're not just putting loads of information into a computer and seeing what, come, what comes out. It's more that the researchers are working with computers, and the computers will draw their attention to patterns. So Project SETI, which is in Dominica with sperm whales, they've got over forty scientists, linguists, engineers, um, uh, animal behavior uh, people, um, and uh, sort of people who work with codes and encoding, and. All of them are taking different bits of this puzzle. So they'll be listening to baby whales as they learn to speak. They'll be, they will be—they know the back history of each individual whale. So once they know who's talking, they can also link it to what else is happening, what's happening in the sea, who are they talking to, what's the history of those in- individuals and their interactions, what have they just done, what else is happening, are there predators around, um, are there babies that are lost? Um, and then they can start taking the patterns that the, uh, because it's not going to be as simple, they don't think as just a Google Translate for Wales, where there'll be direct analogs, because as you say, like their lives are very different, but at the same time, we don't really know because, you know, for instance, we're related to them, that we're mammals, we walked alongside each other as ancestors on land, uh, you know, only 55 million years ago, Um, and we have many things in common. We give birth to life young. We grow up at our mother's breasts, drinking milk. We um, look after each other. We communicate with each other. We have to travel around. We live similar amounts of time. You know, killer whales, orcas live. You know, males about 60 years, females 100 years. Bowhead, bowhead whales live up to 200 years. Um, so we're long-lived social ma- mammals with similar concerns. Uh, you know, some dolphins get high. Um, uh, some, you know, whales uh, seem to kill for, uh, and, uh, infants, you know, there's, we do all sorts of like strange and difficult and, um, and varied things. Uh, and we have a history of, so maybe actually we do have quite a lot of common, maybe there will be analogs. You know, it looks like some orcas grieve for their young when they die. Um, other populations of killer whales have co cooperated with human whalers to hunt together. So we, you know, there we're, it, really, we just have no idea what we're going to discover. But by taking these twin tools, as you very accurately described them, of, of sort of surveillance and analysis, uh, with uh, this other third element, which is that we act, we're actually giving credence to the idea that there might be that something there to find. Um, the uh, analogy I use is it's like the sort of discovery, so the development of a telescope or a microscope. You can't know before you develop it what you're going to find when you point it at something. These tools are going to show us things that we could not perceive before. And I think whatever we find, it's going to be fascinating. Will there be directly analogous things in their communication? Will there be things like structures and patterns that are like ours? Will they have? I mean, it seems like many species have names for themselves and their social groups and accents and uh They talk in really different ways and they use those communication systems to communicate really different things. But will, would be, would be humans be able to understand what they're saying? I mean, really, you get into really weird stuff now where like, right now we can probably deep fake whales pretty well, to the extent that we could play to a whale, something that sounds very much like a whale. We never thought we'd get to the point where we could imitate them uh, better than we could before we could understand what we were saying. Will this develop to the point that only the AI tools will actually be able to have any idea of what they're saying and we won't? So we'll be sort of using technologies where the technologies, I, I hesitate to say, sort of say, understand, but sort of interact in a way that's deeper than we do with the other species. Um it's, it's just absolutely astonishing. Or will there be no, will we be totally stumped? Will we discover patterns but not know what they are? And will it take generations and generations like, you know, you know as it was for us before we came across the Rosetta Stone to de- decode what is in front of us? Um, or are they ultimately incommensurable? Are their ways of thinking so different that we would not be able to understand them? Philosophers have really strong views on this, like Thomas Nagel and Wittgenstein. And you know, I, 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 I really, I'm not really sure philosophers can tell us whether we or not we be able to understand what other animal is, because philosophers are inherently trapped in the brains of human philosophers. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I give them quite short shrift personally. Even though I'm not as clever as them, I just don't understand how they can be so sure and it feels often like posturing um
0: yeah i think something we often do also is try to we're kind of reductionist in that we we go back and we want to see exact correspond correspondences in the brain we look towards the frontal cortex as the only nexus for intelligence and i feel like in in granting i mean granting
1: whatever but <laughs> no, it's interesting it's good that you like naturally go that way yeah
0: but in 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 trying to to think of other animals at, in in terms that we respect um we often have to think that they have some kind of equal or or better frontal cortex than our own and i think that whale Science has kind of taught us that actually intelligence can exist in in different ways and can be isn't necessarily so pinpointable to one specific region of the brain that actually like they have this incredible apparatus for sound and who knows how that interacts with other sound and what kind of meaning that makes Um, like octopuses, for example, their brains aren't necessarily located just in, in the way we think of a brain. Their brains are very decentralized over their body and i feel like this this book for me has really just made me cognizant of the fact that like we know that we're concerned about anthropomorphism we know that we don't want to project human narratives onto animals but also what you called anthro anthropod denialism where we're also denying or or not or not um assuming that other species can possibly have as rich an, an internal life as we do
1: exactly I think I think we're just stuck we I mean I think but most most biologists have moved kind of beyond this you know this idea that there's um it's Franz Waal, the primatologist term anthropodinal this idea that we just sort of consistently try and argue our way away from uh you know, as you put it, granting, because I, and I think it's interesting you said that, it's because it's so ingrained in our culture that that would be a thing for us to grant, or that that's a good thing if it was in there, in there, you know, to be found in them. I think it's like, rather than are they as intelligent as us, you know, there is no really good human intelligence test and there is no really universally accepted definition of intelligence. So, how could we then use a sentence like, are they as intelligent as us? There, I think we're starting to understand. Uh, that there are many different kinds of intelligence. And a more interesting question is what, how does their intelligence system relate to our intelligence system? And how is that different based on what situations they find themselves in? Just as they're, instead of have they got language, should be, we know they've got something that many other species have things that appear to have language-like structures. How do they relate to us? Rather than like, uh, how close to the top of the tree are they? And it's kind of ironic to me that like, the people who've invented many of these ai systems and when i re- read blogs or twitter posts by you know ai people they're both they both invented technologies that are allowing us to discover enormous capacities in other species but also they're some of the people most trapped in this human hierarchy you know like all the ideas of like getting to mars or we might let other animals come you know or like you know i don't know if you've seen like these graphs of like how clever ais might be and it's got like a slug and then an ant and then a chimpanzee in a person in a kind of line and it's so reductive and also like inaccurate biologically and um, it's kind of absurd but um i love the uh uh the, the the anecdotes about those like the i think he was a yosemite ranger and he was tasked with designing a bin that um bears couldn't get into and he said it was really difficult because there's significant overlap between the the smartest bears and the dumbest humans so he couldn't make one that bears couldn't open but the dumbest humans still could open to use um and obviously that's another thing like animals aren't all the same they're individuals, and there are some that are probably not particularly bright, uh, and just like there are some not particularly bright humans in certain circumstances. Um, and so, a lot of our discoveries about other animals, and remember, when we discover animal intelligence, we're not making anything happen, we're just noticing something that's always been there. But a lot of them have been in individual animals in individual settings. How do we know how they relate to all the rest of them? Um, uh, so, it's yeah, it's a big, a big messy situation. And I think our instinctive, we don't want to look silly by, say, being anthropomorphic and saying, yeah, they're, they're definitely just like us. And we don't want to be mean, but we don't have to be either of those things if we just avoid trying to use a rigid hierarchy and just get more interested in the differences than the similarities. And like with brains, I went to Mount Sinai University in New York, uh, teaching hospital, and like I watched them scan the brains of some whales there And they're massive. And they've got big convolutions and they've got loads of neurons that are thought to be really useful in our brains. But they've also got a huge, um, like the bit that separates the two hemispheres of our brains. The corpus callosum is way more developed in many of the cetacean species. And that's really cool because it means they could do something that we can't which is to make one of your, half of your brain go to sleep while the other one is awake. So if you're in the sea and you've got to breathe air, you've got to swim up to the surface and breathe in um, and keep one eye open in case some sharks sneak up on you. So their brains can do that. That's pretty wild. And there's other parts of their brains that are, obviously they use sound much more than us and they use vision much less than us. So the sound parts of their brains are really developed as well. So, you know, we when we talk in this conversation, you'll say things like, do you see what I mean? Or can you imagine and picture this? They probably, we map all of our thoughts onto a worldview built up of images, um, or at least people who are sighted do. And if how does that work if you see the world in densities and sounds and reflections of sounds? Um, and and even in terms of like social cohesion, you know, it really, it's really sad if, if you look at the videos of, um, uh, pilot whales and other social whales being hunted. Often, and the story of Moby Dick, Moby Dick came from a story of a whale that went to defend another whale when it was being attacked by whalers, when it was being slaughtered. Um, These animals, often, if you hunt one of them, if they, when humans stick a spear in the side of one of it and drag it into a harbor, the other ones don't run away. They stay with it. They stay alongside each other, communicating the whole time. Now, it's been really baffling to biologists why when it when it's clear that they're going to die don't they just run away and like when they all mass strand when they wash up on beaches together and they're healthy and they get refloated by people and then they wash up again why don't they leave each other the healthy ones the ones that are free one theory is that they feel so socially connected that they cannot you know that they that they that they cannot leave one another so I don't think that's something like if if you if your friend washed up some humans might stick with each other to the death but most people in a big crowd if they started being speared would run you know that's that's a, a different conceptualization of where your body ends and who you're connected to socially and that I find also really fascinating and I think that's you know with the book goes through like all the different anatomical, historical, sociological, AI reasons, ways that you could sort of approach trying to speak to a whale. But I think the most exciting part of it is not actually speaking to a whale. It's seeing the world from a whale's perspective, trying to understand what's important to them, trying to have a new perceptual window onto being alive on earth. And that's where, that's the, and, you know, Roger Payne, the guy I mentioned earlier, he died just a few weeks ago, sadly. Um, and he, he, the reason that he worked on Whale Song and the reason that he continued to work with Project Seti and Dominica um, is because when he discovered the whales sung, it saved them because Whale Song spread around the world and people played it to each other and it was in National Geographic magazine. It was the biggest single pressing of any record of all time. And when we thought their songs were beautiful, we cared about them sort of hunting them. And similarly, you know, if if you know that another animal speaks and you can listen to what it's saying I think that will be an enormously powerful tool for empathy for caring about those animals and credit them with lives worth inconveniencing ourselves to protect
0: like kind of like what you said in the last chapter it also reminds me of what you said in the last chapter which was that it's not just that you're see- seeing the whale it's also that you're seeing the whale see you so it kind of Opens up a different perspective or, or a broader perspective about, for me, this sounds like for for what intelligence is, for how we place ourselves in a hierarchy of intelligence that is completely
1: inaccurate. Yeah, you put your finger like spot on it. It's like about it's not action where humans are protagonists and wield the world to do their things. That's the the mode we're in at the moment. It it you know. We live in a radically interconnected world, like we are inseparable from all of the animals that you know live inside our bodies, the ecosystems that we're part of, the air that we breathe, you know we've come out of other life forms and we'll turn back into them, and constantly we are communicating um, and interacting. and because we have become so good at tool use and cooperation, we've told ourselves a story that we're kind of separate and a lot of, and there's a philosopher called Jonathan Ledgard who, who calls that what he thinks we're now approaching what we will call the interspecies age, uh, this where he hopes we won't just use these new technologies to manipulate animals where actually this will be a, a, a two-way thing. This will be about conversations and cooperation. Like, you know, life on earth isn't just about food chains and more powerful things, eating less powerful things. It's also about cooperation, you know, from the mycorrhizae that allow nutrient supplies in the roots of trees and forests, you know, to all the social animals like ants and uh, human beings, we must communicate to survive and we must cooperate to survive. And ultimately, hopefully these tools allow us a new frontier of cooperation
0: i think this is a great place to end um tom thank you so much for being on the show
1: thank you so much for having me and especially as i think i'm unusually waffly because i haven't had much sleep so sorry about that
0: no 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 you're perfect